You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, I interviewed Johnny Price, who leads the fundraising team at WeFunder, a platform that lets startup founders raise capital from their customers and community, as well as rich people. Before joining WeFunder, Johnny founded the US team at the nonprofit Kiva.org. He is from the UK, where he studied history at the University of Cambridge and is the proud dad of Felicity, Carlisle, and Margot. I've invested in the WeFunder platform in one of the companies that was raising money, and I'm also an investor and a competitor, so I know a little bit about this space, but I learned more on this episode. We went deep on how crowdfunding, Reg CF offerings work. We also learned about the scale that WeFunder has achieved already, 40% market share, over $450 million raised on the platform, 1,800 plus founders, 26,000 plus jobs created, on a mission to democratize investing in startups and small business. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay tuned. Johnny, welcome to Startups for Good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. What is a community round? Yeah, great question. So at WeFunder, we let startup founders raise capital, not just from VCs and angel investors, but also from their community. So when you run a friends and family round, you're raising from your friends and family. When you run an angel round, you're raising from angels. When you run a community round, you're raising from your community. With a relatively new law called Regulation Crowdfunding that passed uh, Congress in 2012 and was rolled up the SEC in 2016, um, startup founders can now raise money from unaccredited investors as well as accredited investors. And they can publicly promote the investment opportunity. So you can now raise up to $5 million um, per year from your customers and community. And the idea of the community around is that as well as raising capital from VCs, I mean, it can be instead of, but most of the time it's as well as um, institutional or conventional sophisticated investors. And also opening up part of your allocation um, to community to invest. And the idea is that one, this is a way to delight your customers, right? What better way to delight your customers than let them to become owners of your startup? And then secondly, build stronger ties among your community. So every startup founder is trying to, you know, deepen their ties, you know, as community, chief community officers, community managers, and how do we strengthen ties among our community of users? And again, what better way to do that than by allowing them to become equity investors in the company? So really good example, recent company that raised on WeFunder is called Mercury Bank. Um, they're a bank that's um, built for startups, really awesome product. So there is $120 million Series B from K2 and Andreessen. And then at the end of that, opened up $5 million allocation to let their customers invest in them. Only opened it to, to their customers. A lot of founders oftentimes are opening it up to potential new customers or you know, WeFunders investors and see it as a marketing and acquisition play. Um, but for Mercury, it was exclusively existing customers. And they, they raised $5 million from about 2,500 of their customers in a few hours on the WeFunder platform. 
And so that's what we're talking about when we say uh, community brand. So is it more about money or marketing and building relationships with customers? It's both. You, you really hit the nail on the head. There's kind of two value propositions of WeFunder to founders, I would say. So a lot of founders see, see it as an easier way to raise capital because whatever you would be doing in a Reg D round and pitching angels and VCs, you can still be doing that. But now you can also tap into new pools of capital. So now you can tap into the 95% of the population who is unaccredited. They can invest in you as well as accredited investors. You can get in front of WeFunders a million strong investor base. Um, you can publicly promote the offering, which helps get the word out. You know, as your investors come in and invest, they can become your your marketing team for the raise. Um, and so, I would I would argue that you know it, it's a way of making raising capital easier. And so, if you're a startup founder and you know you're making some progress on the seed round, you know, but you kind of need an injection of momentum, or you know you've closed some angel checks and you want to basically you know pitch a ton more and, and raise more, and um, then we can certainly kind of help accelerate on the on the fundraising side. But yeah, I mean, the really explosive campaigns, Mercury's one, Level's another good one recently. Also, Andreessen Horowitz backed, Rome Research was one that also a super explosive campaign. You know, for some, some, and I think an increasing number of companies, they didn't really need the money. They could easily raise from, you know, the best VCs uh, in the world or easily raise from, from angels. But they get really excited about this idea of letting their customers invest in them, both because they think that will increase the net promoter score of their customers. And generally, that's a good thing to do for growing your uh, you know, revenue and LTV and lowering churn and all those kind of you know, metrics around growth. But also, and obviously kind of relevant for this podcast, you know, a big part of what we're trying to do at WeFunder is why should only accredited investors get to benefit from the wealth that startups are creating as, as they kind of go through the gears and, and IPO? Wouldn't it be cool if the, the wealth that's created by the next Uber or the next Airbnb be shared among you know, middle-class Americans as opposed to being concentrated in, in the hands of accredited investors? And so for some startup founders, maybe especially some of the founders listening to this podcast, you know, that kind of mission, mission component of if I slave away for 10 years, build a big company, who do I want to create wealth for and make rich as well as VCs, as well as angels? Wouldn't it be cool if my earliest supporters and champions I got to make money with me along the journey. Yeah, that's a great mission point. And I'd love to get into that more a little later in the podcast. You mentioned Levels. Is that the continuous glucose monitoring company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah we found slash Levels. Yep. They were on the podcast earlier. So people can check out that episode if you want to know more about that company. I'm curious, you're talking about a relationship with customers. Is this really in a sense like getting that share in the Green Bay Packers and just putting it on the wall and you're never going to sell it. It's not about being an investor. It's about feeling part of the team. Or is there some some liquidity that's coming and these truly become investment relationships? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's honestly both, right? So yes, you know, I think a lot of the investors in Mercury and Levels and a lot of the companies you see on WeFunder, they're hoping for that exit, right? As when an angel investor invests in a startup, they're, they're hoping to, to make money and that startup is acquired or exits down the line, right? And by the way, there are other investment structures on WeFunder. There's a revenue share-based investment structure where investors are getting paid out a multiple of their principal. It's actually more like a loan structure 
and they get paid out, you know, 2.5x their principal as a percentage of company revenues down the years. So it's not not just equity. On the equity side, we do safe convertible notes, price rounds, but then also have kind of debt instruments as well, whatever's the right fit for founders and investors. So, you know, I think a lot of investors, you know, the primary motivation or certainly a significant motivation is financial returns. But all that being said, you know, as, as, with, as with kind of most angel investing, right? Like it's fun. It's cool. You get a front row seat, you know, on, on this kind of roller coaster ride of this startup, maybe this cause you care about. The Green Bay Packers is a great example. We've actually had sports teams raised on WeFunder. I live in Nashville now. I was in San Francisco for 10 years, moved to Nashville a year and a half ago uh, during the pandemic. And just down the road from me in Chattanooga, Chattanooga Football Club, a soccer team there, raised 900 grand from three and a half thousand local Chattanoogans. So they're, so they're the Green, Green Bay Packers of uh, US soccer, I guess. And, you know, for those people, I invested 125 bucks in there. My name's on their jersey, you know, and uh, I don't really care if I see any of that money back, but I just think it's really cool that I'm a part owner of the soccer club. There's this company, Leah Labs, went through Y Combinator. It's pretty early. They're trying to cure cancer in dogs. And there was a lot of kind of technology science risk ahead of them. And so, you know, going back to your, your earlier question about the value proposition of, of WeFunder for founders, they needed a bit of a boost to raise, raise the round. So, so raise money on WeFunder. And you see the comments of investors on their page. One of my favorite things to do on WeFunder is to read the notes of why investors are investing in these startups. And you read the comments of investors investing in Leah Labs, and they're all talking about how their dog died of cancer. And you know, they're super proud to be a part of this company that's trying to, trying to tackle this problem. And you know, he's actually, Wes has gone on to get um, NSF uh, grants and is really doing well. It's really exciting. So hopefully there's a big financial return there for our investors. But, you know, for them, I think a lot of that was about was about uh, the mission of it, to your point. And we try to emphasize that. So our tagline and we fund there is not invest in startups and become a millionaire. It's invest in startups you love. So we really try to, you know, emphasize that in our branding and positioning because, you know, if 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 investors are investing with that mindset then when that startup does go to zero, which as you know, is very common in startup land, there's kind of less of a kind of, uh, you know, problem with, with investors getting kind of super angry that they just lost their $100. And have there been exits and sales for these investors? Yeah. So WeFunder actually was a, has been around since 2012. Until the SEC rolled out the regulation crowdfunding laws in, in 2016, we were doing regulation D investments on the platform. So there have been a couple of nice exits from that cohort of companies. So Ginkgo Bioworks um, IPO'd recently. Some lucky WeFunder investors got in pretty early into that deal. I think it was maybe back in 2013, 2014, I'm not sure. And then in the regulation crowdfunding days, so in the last few years, there have been a couple of smaller IPOs. There have been a number of exits, obviously, relatively small number. A couple of things going on here. One, you know, the, the law went live, in, the regulation crowdfunding law went live in 2016. In the early days, it was a pretty small number of companies. Plus, in the early days, that I would say there was kind of more adverse selection. There were some rule changes that the SEC rolled out in March of 2021 that were really exciting for us. Before March 2021, you could only raise a million dollars per year through regulation crowdfunding, Rex, yet. Now you, you can raise $5 million per year. Before March 2021, you, we had to use a custodian to roll investors to one line in your cap table, which is a less familiar instrument. 
Now we can use a special purpose vehicle, an SPV, which is just very commonly known and understood by lawyers and VCs, et cetera. So that was a nice change. And then the third one that was really beneficial for our growth over the last year is that startups can now start fundraising on WeFunder very, very quickly. So it used to be that you had to do a bunch of legal paperwork and financial disclosures before you could you know, have a campaign page live on the website. Now you can be live within a few minutes and start collecting reservations very quickly. So all of these three things combined have meant that startups like Mercury and Levels, it's awesome that you know those guys, are now willing to, to run a community round on WeFunder where in 2019, 2018, when I joined the team, we just weren't having those com- kind of conversations. Or, or if we were, then they were kind of not, <laughs> not ultimately fruitful. There was more of an adverse selection, I think, in the first few years of RegCF. The cohort performance, the IRR of the, the cohort of companies that we've launched over the last year, we're very excited about. We're obviously in the very, very early innings, but uh, so kind of investor returns still, still pretty early days. We try to track it as best we can. If you go to wefunder.com slash results, you can see the best data that we have on our portfolio performance to date, but certainly with this latest kind of cohort post the really awesome SEC rule changes in March, 2021. It's kind of too early to, to say how, it, how those companies are faring at this stage. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad you guys are transparent about the results online. I didn't know about that. That's wonderful. Yeah. You said it's easy to get started with a campaign. I'm imagining there are legal things you need to go through to complete the campaign. And Correct. I imagine there's ongoing responsibilities and reporting. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it used to be, again, pretty much 2021, you needed to do a bunch of legal financial disclosures before you could even start fundraising. You know, so that, that was just a really big barrier to, to entry to even get going with WeFunder. That, that's what's been removed now. So you can up, click a button to upload a pitch deck, put a photo on, a few highlights, team bios. You can, you can really be live you want to in 15 minutes and start to share it around, get feedback, you know, get, get uh, reservations. But to your point, before we send you the money, we need to file what's called a Form C with the SEC. And that Form C has some legal disclosures in there. We do a bunch of compliance and fraud checks on our side. Um, we try to be a relatively open platform. So we're not gonna, we don't really want to be in the business of saying, this $8 million valuation cap should be a $7 million valuation cap or this coffee shop in rural Wyoming, because we do Main Street businesses, by the way, as well as tech startups. You know, this coffee shop in rural Wyoming isn't worthy of trying to raise capital from their customer base online. So we want to be a pretty open platform. But yeah, we have fraud compliance checks before we kind of file this Form C. And there's a, there's a legal requirement and this, I would say, is the one kind of outstanding downside of, of running a community rounds now in, in kind of early 2022, which is that you need to disclose financials. So either two years of financials, so 2020 and 2021, or if you're incorporated more recently, then going back to the incorporation date of the company, but you need to disclose um, two years of financials and those financials are publicly visible. So... Someone can go to the SEC website, the egg database, look up those financials. So for some founders that are worried about you know, that information being kind of transparently available in public, ultimately that might be a deal breaker. Obviously, we, we kind of focus on you know, executing yourself and don't, don't worry too much about you know, people being able to see your, see your P&L statement. 
Um, it's high level PNL. It's not super detailed kind of skew level numbers, but that that's kind of the one. Usually, the one kind of uh, pushback that sometimes founders will be won't be kind of uh, willing to move forward. So, we always like to try and flag that. But yeah, so you get the legal disclosures done, compliance and four checks on our side, financial disclosures. Then you file a form C, and that's what enables us to then um, kick off the process of closing whatever money you've raised in the WeFunder campaign up until that point. And what percentage of your companies have to have lawyers or auditors ongoing to meet those reporting obligations? That's a that's, sorry, I didn't answer your question on ongoing reporting. So, so yeah, so and and actually for the for the filing of the Form C as well. So if you're raising up to 250k, you need. Uh, self-reported financials. If you're raising 250k to a million, technically 1.07 million, those financials need to be reviewed by an independent uh, CPA. If you're raising more than 1.07 million up to 5 million, they need to be audited by an independent CPA. So that's the one-time requirement to launch a campaign. And then there's an, a requirement to file one annual report, which is self-reported the April after um, the campaign closes. So if you were to run a campaign now, here in you know early 2022 and, and close it now, then you would need to file one annual report with self-reported financials with the SEC the April after you after you run the campaign. And do you support Reg A? How should founders think about Reg crowdfunding versus Reg A offerings? Yeah, so regulation crowdfunding, you can raise up to $5 million per year from unaccredited investors. You can publicly promote it. And it's pretty light reporting requirements, as I just mentioned, it's, it's relatively easy and quick to kind of get the financials done, the legal disclosures done, there's no SEC approval. If you're doing regulation A, or sometimes called A+, you can raise up to $75 million per year, so you can raise a lot more money, and you can also publicly promote. But the requirements to launch a campaign and the ongoing reporting requirements are a lot more onerous. So much, much more expensive in terms of legal fees, accounting fees, you need to get SEC approval. I'm not sure the latest uh, timeframes that, you know, if you start working on it, when you can get SEC approval and go live, several months um, at a minimum. It, it tends to be more a fit for kind of later stage companies. I would say VCs now increasingly are increasingly comfortable with, with reg regulation crowdfunding uh, campaigns. I think there would be more kind of eyebrows raised about regulation A+, just given the ongoing kind of burdens from a compliance perspective. So historically, I would say there's been more of a kind of adverse selection with, with regulation A uh, than there has been with, with Reg CF, because if you can easily you know, raise the capital from institutional investors, then it's like, why would you kind of impose this kind of pretty high reporting burden on you? And so historically, that's been more of a challenge, I would say. Going forward, as this exemption and the number of startups that are using Regulation A grows, hopefully that will, that will change over time. But for the moment, that, that kind of adverse selection, just in terms of the quality of the companies we've, we've been looking at, who are doing Reg CF versus Reg A, has been why we as a company have been, have been pretty focused on the reg, Regulation crowdfunding side. So smaller raises, capped at $5 million per year, but yeah, much, much lighter compliance burden. So, so usually a lot more palatable for, for startup founders. So regulation crowdfunding feels less like being public, whereas Reg A is a small exactly. public offering. Exactly. People call it sometimes that kind of mini IPA. Right. Now, how should a founder pick a crowdfunding platform? 
but you get a WeFunder and <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> can you resist? Yeah, I mean, like I'm pretty biased, right? So I would say whoever you are, do WeFunder. Um, there's a few kind of reasons I'd highlight for that. I mean, again, for your audience, we're a PBC, a public benefit corporation. If you go to wefunder.com slash charter, you can read our PBC charter. I, my background was at Kiva.org. I was there, founded their US team back in 2011 and ran that for seven years. So we're all pretty mission oriented at, at WeFunder and we're a B Corp as well. So, you know, we, we are kind of, I would say for, for mission oriented founders, there's that nice kind of alignment there. You know, with the biggest Brexit platform, I have about a 40% market share so far this year in, in 2022. Start Engine's the second biggest, Republic's the third biggest. So those are the other two names that you should be you should be considering. Definitely, you know, talk talk to our team, talk to their teams. Um, we are the cheapest platform by fees. So we charge seven and a half percent in cash of the amount that you raise. No fixed fees. No, we don't take an equity fee. I would argue this is a little bit more subjective, but I would argue we have the best products. So, you know, the best investor flow, account creation, checkout flow, the way we structure investments, I think is the most elegant. So we use an SPV. I believe we're the only platform that uses an SPV, special purpose vehicle to roll investors up to one line on the cap table. And we use preferred stock. Start Engine uses common stock. We think most angel investors are going to want to invest in preferred stock for liquidity preferences and so as not to screw up the 409A valuation. We have a lead investor structure where founder designates uh, usually an angel investor is maybe putting in 5% of the WeFund around who helps to validate the terms of the offering, lends that credibility to the campaign. The lead investor votes for the shares of the individual investors in the SPV. So it's kind of administratively easy for the founder. So those are, those are some of the reasons we think we, I mean, as a result of those factors, I think we have, I would argue we have the best kind of caliber of Reg CF portfolio. So Levels, great example, Mercury, Rome, and some of the companies in the pipeline right now are really, really exciting. But yeah, by all means, you know, especially Republic, I would say, you know, talk to WeFunder, talk to Republic. And yeah, hopefully our, our team can can persuade you that WeFund is the right choice. Yeah, thank you for that. A lot of considerations and very helpful on how someone should think through that. I've personally invested in a WeFunder campaign and I did find it to be easy. I'm also an investor in Republic. So I have to mention that. Is there any specialization by industry? Yeah. So Republic have more of a focus on crypto. So I would say certainly crypto and real estate as well, I would say be more of a fit for Republic. Beyond that, I think Republic, I, I'm speaking a little out of turn here, but I believe they would be a little more focused on kind of venture backable businesses. So I think if it's a main street business, like let's say a brewery or a restaurant, I think that would be a better fit for WeFunder. I, I'm not sure. Maybe Republic will push back on that. You know, for, for WeFunder, we, we run the gamut. So, you know, we're doing kind of venture backable SaaS startups and, you know, consumer tech platforms, biotech companies, uh, but then also, you know, CPG companies, main street businesses, soccer clubs, movies. But uh, so pretty eclectic from an industry focus, but yeah, Crypto, crypto and real estate, we've shied away from a little bit. So if you're in those two sectors, that's where uh, Republic will probably be the, the right platform to go with. Well, thank you for that. On the mission side, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I'd love to dive into it more. How do you measure your impact on your mission? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the kind of blunt answer is we don't. You could say, you know, how many founders have we funded, which right now is about a thousand. You could say how many 
you know, dollars investment capital we raised, which is 450 million. You could say, you know, how many investors have we engaged in, you know, becoming angel investors in startups for the first time, which is about 300,000. I guess some of these are credited and so we're not kind of claiming the credit for creating all of those as angel investors, but the vast majority of those unaccredited and probably so never invested in a startup before. So that's 300,000, you know, new angel investors, which is pretty cool. So that, those are kind of some of the metrics. You can also then cut through with funding and disaggregate that a little. So one of the things, one of the reasons I'm, I work at WeFunder and one of the things I'm excited about is, you know, we believe in politics. If you have a more democratic approach to politics, if you have, you know, a democracy and people can cast their votes individually, then you get more equitable outcomes than if there's a king called George III uh, tyrannically oppressing his, you know, subjects on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Sorry guys for that uh, Wait, where did you grow up you know i grew up in london so that's uh, what i thought yeah <laughs> you can blame me for that historical uh, taxation without representation miles but <laughs> but you know in politics we like democracy we believe it leads to more equitable outcomes and so on on the we funder side you know we're trying to bring democracy to early stage investing and democratization is a buzzword right but for me it's kind of not a buzzword it's pretty clear what it means in this context which is that rather than the top 5% of the population accredited investors getting to vote with their dollars on which startup founders get funded. And right now, you know, less than 3% of VC dollars are going to female-only founding teams. 1% of VC dollars are going to black founders. 23% of dollars are going to the, three, to the 47 states that aren't California, New York, or Massachusetts. So, you know, that, that's the outcomes that kind of the aristocratical system is delivered over the last few decades. And so the democratic approach is everyone gets a vote. Everyone in the country, unaccredited investors, as well as accredited investors, gets a vote and can cast that vote on which startup founders they want to invest in. And so our hope is that we can change some of these statistics and get more capital flowing to female founders, more capital flowing to founders of color, more capital flowing to founders in Tennessee or here in Puerto Rico, where I am right now as opposed to Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. You know, so you've got the aggregate numbers in terms of how we think about our impact. Then you've got the what percentage of, of capital is going to maybe groups and founders that have historically been underrepresented. And if you go to wefund.com slash PBC, you can see our latest year's impact uh, numbers uh, across these dimensions. There's also kind of the outcome metrics in quotes, right? So we'd love to talk about jobs created or you know, kind of economic tech activity kind of stimulated. We're not kind of too worried about trying to track those results right now. I remember this at Kiva. I always was kind of try, trying to focus because, you know, Kiva was resource constrained. We funded a startup in really hyper growth mode. We grew by about 4x last year. So we're pretty resource constrained. We're growing quickly. So it's like, we got to try to focus our very limited resources on growing the business as opposed to measuring our impact. And Hopefully over time, as we kind of build out the team and we have a little bit more slack, then we can try to kind of you know, measure the, the social impacts of, uh, of the company and the work that we're doing. But for the moment, I would say we're trying to focus our precious resources and continue to, to grow this model. We have a lot of faith in what we're doing, a lot of conviction. So that, that's kind of the focus uh, you know, for, for the while. Yeah, from that webpage, I'm looking at it right now, it says female founders on WeFunder is 22%. Black founders right. is above four and outside yeah. Silicon Valley, 87%, which all compare very favorably to those stats that you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I think those numbers actually might be um, 
might be even higher more recently. We should probably update them. But but yeah, certainly doing better than historical kind of, let's say, VC dollars, still a lot of work to do. And what is that work? Like, how do you do that? Is that about getting the message out? I think so. I think that's the biggest challenge that we have right now is just kind of making sure that founders are aware of this. It's still pretty new, right? The, the By far, the, the most common way to raise capital is you go to angels, you go to VCs. And, and by the way, just to reiterate, you know, WeFunder is not about kind of replacing that. For me, it's an extension to that, right? And so there may be some founders that choose to go exclusively the, the community round routes. But for me, VCs add a lot of value. Angel, angels writing larger checks add a lot of value. So raise from conventional investors, but then also let your community invest. One, because that's a good thing to do, <laughs> a noble thing to do. Um, but also because it, you know, is going to accelerate your growth and do good things for your business to have this army of um, champions and allies. So anyway, you know, but that that method of, you know, angels, VCs, Reg D is still by far the most common path. So yeah, the challenge of me and our, our team on the BD side is to really just kind of, yeah, make founders aware that this is an option that they can consider, maybe reasons they choose not to go down the street, but getting the word out and especially getting the word out, yeah, to founders who, historically might be relatively underrepresented. And, and the cool thing there from our business perspective is that's actually a stronger product market fit, right? So if you believe, as I do, there's maybe some kind of bias and discrimination in how our funding decisions are made today, then if we're targeting customers who are facing that bias, they're actually more interested in using WeFunder because for them to be able to raise capital from their customers um, and community is relatively more valuable because it's relatively harder for them to raise capital from conventional investors. So it's a nice kind of alignment of trying to fix these, these metrics and inequities, but also hopefully, you know, uh, product market fit on the WeFunder side. And so great. Now switching gears a little bit, you announced a partnership with micro acquire, and I'd love to learn yep. more about that. Yeah, I think Andrew and the team over there are doing great work. So micro acquire, if you don't know them, they're a platform that helps uh, small businesses and, and, and companies get acquired uh, by investors. So uh, we had Andrew on our Adventure Capital podcast recently, and he was talking about the process when he'd sold his companies in the past. And it's just the most Byzantine, anachronistic, complex process, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, uh, seems like a process that was made in the 1930s because it probably was. He gave some example of how if you want to be a business broker, you need to get a real estate license. So if you want to sell your, your SaaS company, you have to have a real estate license. And so, you know, he's just trying to disrupt that um, process of, of selling companies. And so he's built a two-sided marketplace where, you know, founders are going on and looking to sell companies. You know, people looking to acquire them can come and, and look at different options. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very natural partnership where, you know, I think, I think the tagline was, we funded companies can now get micro acquired, which I think was the first time we fund has been used as a past participle. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's very natural. You, you raise money on WeFunder, you grow your company, and now you're looking to sell it. And so there's kind of a natural pipeline that we can kind of connect, connect founders to the team micro acquire, big fans of what they're doing. Well, thanks for sharing more about that. And it's good that there are pathways for the investors to get liquidity. You are on the map when you use the name of your startup as a verb. So congrats on that. There you go. There you go. Let's refund it. I'd love to turn a little bit more to your personal story. 
Any learnings from Kiva that you've carried forward into this business? A lot. Kiva, I was at Kiva for seven years. I joined in 2011. Uh, left my, my first job was in strategy consulting at Oliver Wyman. Did that for six years and then joined Kiva to start this, this team in, in 2011 called Kiva Zip. And how much you know about the Kiva model, but you know, we're, kind of, we're working with microfinance institutions around the world who we partnered with. We were crowdfunding loans to these micro businesses in Kenya or Cambodia or Peru. Um, and in the, in the regular Kiva model, the loans are administered by these MFI microfinance institution intermediaries. And what my team was doing, actually we called it Kiva Zip, was um, trying to cut out the middleman and lend directly to the borrower. So we would crowdfund the loan, there would be a picture of the, the business, kind of like WeFunder, but it might be a $200 loan for a farmer in rural Kenya. So eight people would lend her $25 and then we collect that money on Kiva. And then the, the classic Kiva model, we send it to the MFI and then they on-lend it to the borrower at an interest rate. And with Kiva Zip, we were cutting out the MFI and we were lending that $200 directly to that farmer with no interest. In Kenya, where we launched, we were using M-Pesa to do that, which is a mobile payments platform that is very ubiquitous in Kenya. So we could send $200 directly to the mobile phone of this farmer in Kenya. It was honestly magical. I think it was the coolest thing that Kiva ever did. So we launched Kiva Zip in Kenya and the US. So the first big learning for me was that that was absolutely disastrous decision. So if you've read Zero to One by Peter Thiel, you know, he talks about Facebook starting in just Harvard, right? <laughs> and having a super uh, kind of targeted customer segment uh, and then kind of growing it there and then expanding it to other Ivy League schools and then other colleges and finally the wider population. And so we decided to launch Kiva Zip in Kenya, where we're making $200 loans to farmers in, in rural Kenya. And then also America, where we're making a you know, $10,000 loan to a hipster with a coffee shop on Valencia Street in San Francisco. So we had like one software engineer who's like trying to build, you know, a loan application and like payment rails for, uh, you know, these two like wildly different custom segments. And I can't believe that we kind of soldiered on for four years. In the end, the decision to shut down the Kenyan side was, was triggered by a new CEO who came in, not even kind of me and the team <laughs> deciding to do that. We shouldn't bring ourselves to do it. It's really hard to shut something down once you've once you've launched it. But you know, looking back, we should have just picked one one geography, launched it there. So that's that's one big learning. And then second is probably around um, the nonprofit sector um, and a lot of the kind of structural challenges with the nonprofit sector, not being able to raise venture capital because there aren't the returns there, which then just means that the capital you can raise comes with a lot of strings attached. It's kind of expensive to raise it, it's more incremental, which just really makes it harder to grow because you don't have that capital to invest. It also means that you can't pay people as well. And so some people are willing to take the big pay, pay cut um, to, to go to the nonprofit sector, but the vast majority of the population isn't. So then you're kind of pretty constrained from a talent pool perspective. I'm actually not giving up on the nonprofit sector. So my, actually my next job post WeFunder, you know, in 10 years time, I actually want to go back and into the nonprofit sector. That's what I want to do next. I, I think there's hope and, you know, there's just need, you need to approach it the right way. But certainly there are a lot of structural challenges. Dan Pelosa has a really interesting TED talk about this. One of the biggest ones is that funders don't want to fund infrastructure in the nonprofit sector. And I saw this. They want to fund boots on the ground, resources that they can see. None of our funders wanted to fund the um, engineering team. 
at Cuba. They wanted to find boots on the ground in cities, talking with with borrowers and small businesses. But it's like, imagine if if like the VCs that funded Amazon, you know, hadn't let them invest in the platform and the infrastructure and the engineering team, you know, then you can't scale. And so there's there's a lot of kind of structural challenges in the sector. Not giving up on it, but um, that that was you know it it made it a, a real grind. So I could probably talk talk your ear off for another three hours on lessons learned at Cuba, but I'll I'll stop there at two. Yeah, if people haven't read Dan Pilata's books about the challenges with nonprofits and how we think about them, and his some of his proposed solutions, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating, and if you haven't thought much about this topic, go. Watch his TED Talk, read his books right now. In the transition into WeFunder, what experiences did you bring from Kiva that helped you be more successful in this job? <laughs> Honestly, none. <laughs> well, the, the only real answer there is um, that several people from Kiva followed me to WeFunder, and they are now amazing leaders at WeFunder. You were just absolutely crushing it and a huge part of the reason why we've seen such exciting growth over the last few years at WeFunder. So the only, anything of value I think I brought was other people. <laughs> I actually thought that, you know, because Kiva's, okay, it, I was leading the US team at Kiva, right? So it's crowdfunded capital for US small businesses and entrepreneurs, right? And so it's like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> you know, basically it's just to repeat the playbook at WeFunder. Not the case, sadly, Miles. So at, at Kiva, the average loan was five thousand dollars, and it's the barber shop in in the city of Detroit, or the you know, taqueria in uh, the Mission, or this small family farm in rural Arkansas. And so, it went from that to you know, startups that we funded, venture backed startups, right? White YC startups, average raise that we fund is four hundred grand, right? Versus five grand at, at Kiva, and so this is a very different customer set. Very different, like network of you know partners. Kiva, you're talking to the SBA, you know, and at WeFunder, you're talking to tech stars and 500 startups. I literally had never heard the term cap table when I joined WeFunder. I had never heard the term convertible note, <laughs> and so it was a baptism of fire. As I was like, wait, I thought I was going to come in and know this stuff. So it's been an amazing uh, learning curve the last uh, few years. And then the other thing where I just felt totally uh, kind of ill-equipped was. In my role, so at Kiva, I was running the U.S. team. So I was running this team of 15 full-time staff and probably 50 or 60 people throughout the country, kind of volunteering and kind of working for partners on on Kiva. But I was kind of like a general manager, and we found that my role is more on the business development side. So kind of like a sales role, talking to founders, referral partners, trying to grow the founder side of the marketplace. And I'd never done that kind of role before. I, you kind of do that, right? If you're running a program, but yeah, I, I feel like from a role perspective, certainly it had never had any training in sales or business environmental partnerships or anything like that. So, you know, I've tried to <laughs> pick that up along the way as well. But yeah, in retrospect, uh, I was pretty un- unqualified for the role that I found, found myself in, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's made it more fun and more, more learnings, right? So. It has been a really, really awesome four years so far and really does feel like we're, it's a cliche, but it feels like we're just getting going. So it sounds like you would recommend if someone wants to have an impact, they should go work at a mission-driven for-profit company rather than at a nonprofit. I don't know if I quite go that far. I, I really like Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he kind of starts that off by saying, you know, everyone kind of defines success in, in their own ways, right? So 
you may define success as having a really, really deep, narrow impact in, in a particular field, let's say a particular geographic community, right? And so if you're really shooting for deep impact, then I would probably argue the nonprofit sector is better. And, you know, if you look at the, the types of um, entrepreneurs that we were serving at Kiva versus WeFunder, the entrepreneurs at Kiva tended to be pretty low income. Median household income of borrowers at Kiva US was $42,000. You know, like I think we said 4% of WeFunded Capital going to black founders at, we, at Kiva, that number was like 30%, you know? So in terms of depth of impact, I would say Kiva and probably the nonprofit sector can be deeper. And so it really depends kind of what you're looking for. If you're looking for kind of scale and growth, then yeah. I mean, like I say, it, I wouldn't necessarily rule out the nonprofit sector. Grameen America, I think has had a really big, scale on the kind of US like existing capital for micro entrepreneurs side. Um, certainly there are some significant structural impediments to, to building a nonprofit uh, that has kind of really, really mass scale. Well, thank you for those thoughts. And thanks for sharing so much about crowdfunding. I think it's been a masterclass for our audience and I really appreciate you doing it. Absolutely, man. It's really fun conversation. Great questions. Looking forward to, to seeing, it, uh, seeing it go up. How can people follow up online? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Johnny Price, uh, WeFunder. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Johnny C. Price. You follow WeFunder. WeFunder has an amazing YouTube uh, channel. This guy Classic on our team is honestly, I would say, the most brilliant kind of marketing. It's so fun. He's so funny. So that's a really great follow. But yeah, WeFunder.com is where you can go to get more info. If you want to apply, you can apply there. Um, but also, yeah, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty pretty good at responding to, to DMs. That's where you can find me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mars. It's been a pleasure. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.